Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Language Hacking Podcast. Today, I will be talking with Brian Powell, and he is a pioneer for the Arabic translation company, Industry Arabic. So we dive into great detail on Arabic specifically and how he's dealt with modern standard Arabic versus dialect differences and how he's gone into a formal career as a translator, especially starting through Arabic. And as well as that, he has a passion for Latin. So we dived into a bunch of things. I was very curious to hear his story. And he talked about uh, the concept of living Latin and uh, multiple different uh, points of discussion around how he has embraced learning Latin and how useful it may be for other people. And uh, of course, we dived into his general experience with how he got into languages, where he sees his future, and plenty more things, but especially about Latin in particular and Arabic in particular. So I hope you enjoyed that interview. Let's dive right into it. The links and resources mentioned in this episode can be found at languagehacking.com forward slash 122. Welcome to the Language Hacking Podcast from Fluent in Three Months. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Language Hacking Podcast. I'm your host, Benny Lewis, and today I will be interviewing Brian Powell, and I'm going to be diving into a bunch of things with him about learning Latin and Arabic and his personal story. So uh, let's dive right on in. So, Brian, could you tell us how you got into language learning and how your story evolved from there? Okay, yeah. Well, I think, you know, I began... As like a typical American who we don't really think that it's possible to learn a foreign language in the US. I think our attitude is that to learn a foreign language, you have to be some kind of genius, like that you need a super level of intelligence to ever learn a language fluently. So that was kind of the attitude I had growing up, although I, I was interested in languages. And I started out studying French in high school. And um, I continued through college, through university. I was studying French literature in college. Um, but I never thought I could actually achieve fluency in, in a foreign language. I, I never thought I would be fluent in French. I, my goal was just to be able to read. I thought, okay, if I can just read books in French, I would be happy. And then I did a study abroad program uh, my junior year of college. And I lived in France for a year. And at the end of that experience, I found that I was fluent in French. And this is something I never aspired to and never thought possible. And I think once that happened, that kind of really opened up my ambition with languages. And I began to wonder, what other languages can I learn? Since I realized that it is possible to learn a foreign language to fluency. Um, so that kind of really raised the level of my ambition. And that's kind of how I got started with Arabic. I, you know, I saw um, how learning a language opens up new experiences. It opens up new cultures. Um, I mean, you can meet new people. And so I wanted to do the same thing I did with French, but with kind of a, a more foreign language, a, you know, a language more removed from, from English, both um, in terms of the difficulty and in terms of the culture as well. Um, so yeah, I started studying Arabic. 
Um, and I became obsessed with Arabic for several years. And, you know, my, I was like, I wanted to become fluent in Arabic. Um, and yeah, then I began adding more and more languages after that. I kind of started to <laughs> go crazy with languages. But th those are the first two that really got me started. Uh, so from there, you've actually written a guest post on the Fluent in Three Months blog about your adventure learning Latin. So how did you go from these uh, this initial language adventure you were on to learning uh, essentially a dead language? And how much harder was it to learn Latin compared to learning a living language? Okay, well, I, I, I always had Latin going on in the background for a long time. Um, I did a little bit of Latin in high school. Um, I did a lot of classics in college as well. Uh, I mean, this comes from my background in literature. Like I wanted to read, you know, classical literature, like Latin literature. And um, my first experience with um, living Latin, which I wrote about in the guest post for you, was um, in 2007 when I did uh, an, an intensive Latin program at the Vatican, actually, with with um, with a guy by the name of Reginald Foster, who was the Vatican's Latin translator. And every summer, he used to hold sort of a, a Latin summer school for aspiring Latinists. And um, it was an intensive program where we would have six hours a day of class in Latin, mostly based around reading. It wasn't really an entirely living Latin method. It was kind of reading translation, sight translation method. But at the end of every day, he would hold this session called Subarboribus, like under the trees, where we would go and sit in the garden and we would just converse in Latin. And Reginald Foster, I mean, he was an amazing Latinist. He knew everything there was to know about Latin. And so he spoke Latin fluently. And he was the one who really got me started with living Latin. Um, and it was always in the back of my mind as something that I wanted to go back to at some point. Um, but I kind of left it aside for a long time when I was focused on Arabic. And to be honest, I, the Living Latin movement is something that's been kind of exploding in the past 20 years and the opportunities have been increasing. Um, so several years later, when I wanted to go back to Latin, there was already a lot more opportunities uh, to practice it. Um, in particular, there's a new... So online school called Paideia, the Paideia Institute, which holds a lot of online classes where you can do spoken Latin um, in various different ways. You know, a, a lot of the classes are based around, say, reading a text in Latin and discussing it in Latin. Uh, others are more just conversation. Um, but in general, it's 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 becoming a very vibrant community, and and there's a lot of a lot of opportunities for it nowadays. So I'm curious about this living Latin movement, because in, in my mind, it is a, a language used mainly for the reading aspect. But like you said, you were able to get a somewhat of an immersive experience in the Vatican City program. And you were having these, uh, what did you say, sub arborius, uh, arboribus? Sub arboribus. Sub arboribus, which of course I recognize uh, the bases of those from various Latin languages that I've learned. Um, so how does, like for people who, who only imagine Latin in a classical context, 
How does it function as a somewhat living language? I might need to think a second about that one. Um, I think first off, the thing you need to realize is that although the classical Latin is the ideal, it's kind of the standard, Latin continued to be used uh, throughout European history for thousands of years as a as the language of culture and science and knowledge. And it was even spoken by scholars, intellectuals, monks in their communications. So it, it continued as a spoken language for quite some time, um, probably until the 17th century, um, maybe even later in some contexts, including the Catholic Church. I mean, obviously it was very you spoken among them. So there is kind of already a background to using Latin in a spoken way. And um, I think obviously grammatically it's challenging to speak Latin because it is an inflected language. It uses, you know, cases and declensions and conjugations. Um, and I think when we do speak Latin among each other, for example, I've, I've been in contexts where we have um, these Latin speaking conventions and you're speaking with, say, mostly a group of Americans or native English speakers, and we're all trying to speak in Latin to each other. And so the Latin that we speak, it will be to some degree influenced by English. Let, let's admit it. Maybe say, for example, in the sentence structure, you might find people using, um, you know, a subject verb object sentence structure, which is an English sentence structure. Whereas in classical Latin, classical Latin was a subject, object, verb sentence structure. Um, but the great thing about Latin is that it is a very flexible language because it's inflected. And even classical Latin writers played with the word order a lot. So even if you're not speaking it exactly the way that Cicero would have spoken it, you are still getting practice that I think translates back into a better skill reading the language at the end of the day. And I think that that's the main reason why people are trying to speak Latin. It's not, okay, we're going to revive ancient Rome or anything. It's that having spoken fluency and listening fluency in a language increases your reading fluency as well because you internalize the structures of the language better. Um, and I think in particular with, with the inflections of Latin, I think if you practice applying them on your own, then when you are reading a Latin text and you are seeing all these cases and whatever, you don't have to translate in your head. And I think that's kind of what people who did the traditional grammar translation method for learning Latin, and then they start reading these classical texts, you know, it's kind of like a slog for them. You know, you, you read a sentence and then you have to you know, solve the puzzle. Like they're jumping around that sentence looking, oh, where's the subject? Where's the verb? Where's the object? And then they have to analyze, okay, what, okay, this is a, all right, this is a data, a noun in the dative. Okay, what does the dative mean here? And they don't have the feel for the language. What, what living Latin does is it gives you this intuitive feel for the language that you can't get any other way. So one thing that has uh, come up with me for conversations with lots of people is they've considered learning Latin more as a stepping stone, thinking that if I learn Latin first, 
then I will do so much better at Latin languages. I will learn French and Spanish and Italian so much easier. I've been very skeptical of this and I've said, just learn one of the um, modern languages and then from there you can learn one of the other ones. Uh, I'm curious, other than being able to use it with the Latin speaking community, do you see other uh, kind of side benefits of Latin, whether that's helping you with other Romance languages or in other ways in helping you with language learning in general? Okay, well, yes, I, I, I share your skepticism about Latin being useful to learn Romance languages. I think what you'll find is that, yes, the Latin language is at the root of these languages, but the problem is that the, um, the senses of the words have shifted a lot when going from Latin to the Romance languages. Um, usually the Latin words or the Latin roots have kind of a more literal sense to them than kind of a more concrete sense than a lot of the words in the Romance languages where they become more, more abstract. Um, and yeah, it, it's, it's, you don't get a lot of bang for your buck to put it that way. Learning Latin is a big challenge. And really, if you want to learn Romance languages, your best bet is to learn one Romance language and then the other ones will be actually very easy. I mean, that's, that's been my experience. Um, I do think one thing, one major benefit I've had from learning Latin is that it makes you comfortable with languages that have a different word order than English and languages that are inflected. Um, for example, um, I've learned Persian in, in recent years. And Persian, like Latin, is a language that the word order is subject, object, verb. And I, you know, I was already used to that word order from speaking Latin. And so when I learned it in Persian, it didn't really throw me for a loop. It was very comfortable for me. Um, and similarly with cases, like I already have a good feel for cases, uh, for nouns that have, um, have cases. And that's come in handy learning German and Russian which are also languages that have the same thing. So when I start learning these languages, you don't need to like understand, okay, what's a dative or what's an accusative? You don't, you don't need to learn these kind of structural elements that, um, you know, if you're approaching a language like that for the first time, it can be confusing for this, this kind of concept, which is, you know, it doesn't exist in English. It's very outside of our experience. So if somebody were interested in diving into Latin, what kind of resources would you recommend that they use? Okay. If you're starting from scratch, I think the best book to start with is called Lingua Latina Per Se Illustrata by Hans Orberg. This is, um, this is kind of a more intuitive method for learning Latin. It immerses you in Latin from day one. It is taught without the, without the use of any other language, um, without relying on English. It's kind of a self-explanatory book where you just start with sort of basic sentences and you build up from there. Uh, you learn the grammar as well through an absorption method. Uh, so this is, if you really want to learn Latin in an intuitive way and also speaking it as well, because it does contain exercises for speaking, uh, that's probably the best way. Um, Beyond that, once you get to a more advanced level, there's, uh, there's a lot more resources nowadays than there were in the past for especially living Latin resources. Uh, for example, there's an online newspaper that publishes articles in Latin. If you want to see how you can apply Latin to sort of everyday topics, uh, there are 
podcast in Latin. Um, one of um, one of my friends, he has a YouTube channel called Scorpio Martianos, where he he talks a lot about Latin and talks in Latin. Um, another one is Magister Craft, where he also does a lot of YouTube channel YouTube videos in Latin, where he takes you on a guided tour of ancient Rome with kind of kind of visuals and everything, and discusses everything in Latin. Um, and this is of course beyond actually reading texts in Latin, which is ultimately what everyone wants to do. Uh, for that, there's also a lot of resources. Um, there's including graded readers. Uh, another great web website for learning Latin is Latinitium. It's called Latinitium. And this is a site that puts out, um, they've published several intermediate level readers in Latin. In addition to publishing a lot of short text to read in Latin on their website, uh, and they have recordings as well if you want to listen to Latin. Um, so really, there's there's a wealth of resources nowadays, much more than when I started out. And we will make sure that links to all of those are in the show notes for the episodes. People can check those out. Okay, so as well as Latin, you've experienced uh, speaking French and Spanish, Arabic, like you said, Persian, even Greek. So, so these are vastly different languages. I'm very curious what your language learning strategy is. Obviously, it has to be different uh, for something like Latin. Uh, but for in general, for all of these modern spoken languages, what does your approach look like? Okay, well, yeah, I've definitely refined my approach over the years, especially after my experiences with French and Arabic. Um, I think my ideal approach nowadays when I'm starting a new language, especially the ones I've done in recent years, such like you mentioned Greek uh, or German, is on the one hand, I'm, I'm sort of a grammar nerd, I'm going to admit that, and I really like learning the grammar of the language, and I find that I can actually learn the basic grammar pretty quickly. So I, I will actually do a more traditional grammar-heavy approach as one aspect of my language learning. So I will start out with a good, a good grammar textbook that will take you through the basic grammar with a lot of exercises to reinforce the structures. And I can cover that in maybe six months or so. But at the same time, I recognize like just doing grammar is not enough. And so I like to incorporate a lot of listening as well. And that is something that I only realize is useful sort of later on in my language learning journey. When I was learning French at the beginning or Arabic, I kind of neglected listening. I didn't throw that in until the end. But I realized that actually listening is a great way to uh, really get the intuitive feel for the language. You, in, you internalize it a lot better. So I'll typically look for another resource that's listening heavy uh, when I'm learning the language. Uh, I'm a big fan of the Asimil series, actually. I've used that uh, for German and, and for Greek. Um, but anything along those lines is helpful. Anything that has just a lot of listening and that you can just listen to the same text over and over again. Uh, sometimes I will just re-listen to old dialogues from Asimil while I'm doing something else, like I'm doing some work and I'll just have these dialogues going on in the background. And I find this really helps internalize um, the structure of the language. And finally, I also incorporate a lot of lessons with online tutors. Uh, I typically find the tutors through italki. Um, and with the tutors, I usually don't go for structured le lessons. I prefer to just have tutors that will have you speak 
you know, you'll just speak with a spontaneous conversation and they'll give you some corrections along the way. And that's a good way to help find out where are your weak points in the language or what are, what's the vocabulary that you don't have. You kind of discover what you, what you're lacking just through this process of speaking. Absolutely. And like, I would agree with uh, everything you said there, especially it's interesting that with your breadth of languages, you find a grammar upfront uh, approach as, as useful as you do. I've definitely found over the years, the more languages I've learned, the more intuitive a sense for grammar I get, that it is more beneficial for me to learn it upfront. But generally with beginners, I tell them, you know, you, you should put that off a little bit because uh, it's, a, it's going to be a little bit overwhelming. Um, but having said that, the uh, approach, like you just said, uh, can be very similar for a lot of the languages that you've learned. But given the breadth of different experiences you've had, I'm, I'm interested to hear what challenges have particular languages given to you that have not been present in other ones? And how have you overcome those challenges? Okay, well, I think Arabic probably has the most unique challenges of any other foreign language I've dealt with because of the issue of diglossia. So what diglossia means is that in Arabic, there are actually two levels to the language. There is modern standard Arabic, which is the um, lingua franca of the Arab world, let's say. It is the language of journalism, of basically any written text is published in modern standard Arabic. It's the language of, of news broadcasts. Um, and when Arabs from different countries are trying to talk to each other, they can revert to modern standard Arabic. But that's not the language that is spoken on a day-to-day -day level in most Arab countries. Each Arab country has its own dialect, or some countries have several dialects that can differ fairly significantly from modern standard Arabic. So what that means is that as a foreigner learning Arabic, you have to decide where you want to start. Do you start with modern standard Arabic and start with the language that you can speak anywhere in the Arab world, but people will look at you funny for speaking that way? Or do you choose the dialect of a specific country and, okay, you learn a dialect for that country, but then you go to another country and it doesn't work. You have to learn another dialect. So in my experience, I started out with modern standard Arabic. Uh, that's the approach typically followed in universities in the US. And so you start out with modern standard Arabic. And then when you finally start to travel in the Middle East, then you throw in the dialect as well, depending on the country you go to. Um, so in my, my deepest experience has been with the Levantine dialect and with the Egyptian dialect. I first started studying out in Syria and then later on, I spent many years in Egypt. Um, so I, I gained deep familiarity with those dialects. But at first, obviously, it's a struggle because you think you know the language and then you arrive on the street and you don't understand anything or you don't understand as much as you thought you did. <laughs> um, so fortunately, I had, especially in Egypt, I had a very great program that I attended called the Center for Arabic Studies Abroad. And they had a great way to um, ease you in to the Egyptian dialect where they would present you materials that are kind of um, intermediate between the two, uh, between modern standard Arabic and the Egyptian dialect. So 
this is probably a phenomenon more in Egypt than in other countries where in Egypt, they like to mix the dialect with the, with the formal language. And so you might have, say, for example, an intellectual discussion show where they're kind of speaking Egyptian Arabic and then they're also doing some modern standard Arabic. And this, at least if you know modern standard Arabic, this kind of gives you kind of a point to hang on to. You can sort of follow what they're talking about. But then at the same time, they're throwing all, throwing in all these colloquial Egyptian words and over time you start to absorb them. So I, I dealt with a lot of materials like that when I was learning Egyptian Arabic. Um, but I think typically to go from modern standard Arabic to the dialects, the one, the one nice part about that is that the grammar is actually a lot simpler. So if you nail down the modern standard Arabic grammar, a lot of the dialects, you're just going to simplify what you know. So for example, uh, in modern standard Arabic, there is, um, the dual case, for example, like if you talk about two of something, you have a special form in the verb, you have a special pronoun for that. In most of the dialects, this doesn't exist anymore. So you can just use the normal plural. So again, you're simplifying things. Um, other than that, it's a lot of training your ear because it's um, a lot of the differences in the dialects between each other and between modern standard Arabic is in the pronunciation. The pronunciation of certain le letter shifts, um, even sometimes the stress on the word shifts. Um, so yeah, you, you have to kind of train your ear to some extent. So how can somebody like get through to a particular dialect? I personally had the experience of attempting Egyptian Arabic and um, it's like interesting when I shared it online, I had a lot of uh, Egyptians tell me, why would you even learn that? Just learn modern standard Arabic. Um, and of course, when I went to Egypt, the, the dialect was vastly more useful for me and my purposes of communicating on the street with people. So uh, you have that little bit of a pushback sometimes that, I, that makes it harder on another level of just finding resources because you're just overwhelmed with everything for modern standard Arabic. So like the kind of things I did were, were making sure I was getting private lessons with a teacher who very much was biased towards teaching me the dialect and that I would make a note of vocabulary and pronunciations from those trying to get resources like listening to live streamed radio um, and music from the country, but um, like very specific resources for Egyptian Arabic is a little bit easier, but for some of the other uh, so-called dialects uh, can be a huge challenge. What, what do you recommend if somebody is going to um, uh, like really wants to learn a particular dialect, what could give them a leg up, especially in preparation before going to the country? Well, yeah, I think nowadays we're actually very lucky in terms of the resources we have for Arabic dialects, because nowadays, for, I think one thing in particular that is very useful are YouTube channels. Nowadays, in every Arab country, there are YouTubers who are producing content in their dialect. Uh, they're speaking in a natural way. So if you really want to get a sense of a dialect before you go to the country, try to find popular YouTubers from that country. Because the thing is, the, dab, the, the dialects are still a bit of... In some countries, they're a bit taboo in the official media. So you won't find um, really authentic language used in, say, 
on the t- on television in the television that they're formal programs. Obviously, there are maybe TV series. A lot of TV series are in dialects, but obviously, it's going to be a more a restricted version of the dialect. Let's say they're not going to use a lot of the day to day slang that you'll find on the street. Um, they're not going to use profanity, for example. So there's <laughs> there's actually a lot of the dialect that you'll be missing out if you just watch uh, TV series. Uh, so that's why I recommend YouTube channels. Obviously, if you're starting out, it might be a bit difficult to really understand these channels to start with because they're speaking unfiltered dialect. Uh, for that, I would actually recommend working with a tutor. Uh, that's what I've done before with uh, with Lebanese Arabic. I had a great tutor that I found on Italki, and what we would do is we would listen to a YouTube video, short YouTube video in Lebanese Arabic, and what she would do, we would take it sentence by sentence, we would break it down, we would repeat what they say, syllable by syllable, make sure like I'm nailing down the pronunciation, I'm imitating the pronunciation of what they're saying, we're analyzing the vocabulary, we're analyzing the structure. And that's actually a good way to do it. If you can find a tutor who will take that approach with you, that is a really great way to learn the dialect. Excellent tip there. So another uh, interesting part of your story is turning this passion for languages into a career. And you're a partner of the Arabic translation company, Industry Arabic. So how did you get into this industry? And how has this uh, process of mixing your passion for languages with um, making a living out of it? How does that, how has that kind of transformed your life? So, so the truth is I never planned to be a translator. It was not kind of on my horizon when I was learning languages, not when I was learning French, not when I was learning Arabic. But what happened was I went to study in Egypt for a year. And at the end of my studies, I wanted to stay in Egypt longer. And I was just looking for a job, any job that I could find just to support myself and, and stay in the country. Uh, so I had thought about English teaching. I was looking at options, but I actually had a few Egyptian friends who were translators. And they actually set, set me up with a job in an Egyptian translation agency. So I, I got my start there at an Egyptian translation agency, um, working long hours. You know, I had no experience, but at least I was a native speaker of English. And that's kind of what they lacked in the company. They had Egyptian translators trying to translate into English. And they would have, initially they were having me review the translations. But with time, they realized it was actually easier just to give me the translation myself to do. It was faster. So I started translating from Arabic into English. Um, so it was a good start, but the working conditions were not great. So eventually I found uh, this position with Industry Arabic, where I'm, where I'm still at. And uh, let's say the rest is history. I've, you know, I've been working as a translator now for 10 years. And it, I've realized it's actually the perfect job if you're passionate about languages because it forces you to go really deep in a language. Um, so, of course, when I started out as a translator of Arabic, I had a very high level, but it was a very academic kind of Arabic that I had been exposed to in my studies. Uh, you know, if you learn modern standard Arabic, you focus a lot on politics, you focus a lot on literature. And so I was very good with those kind of texts. But then you, when you become a translator, you find the kind of texts that people need translated are of a very different sort. Um, especially in my experience, we've had a lot of legal translation. So I actually had to learn 
how to understand legal Arabic, which is not something I had ever planned to do. And to some extent, I had to learn legal English as well in order to be trans, in order to translate from legal Arabic into legal English. Um, you get a lot of business documents, marketing, uh, birth certificates, death certificates. You see all the official documents of different countries. Um, one thing you see is Arab in Arabic as well is that even the modern standard Arabic, the official language does vary from country to country. You see the government's using different terms on their, on their official documents. So being a Arabic translator has given me a much deeper sense or let's say a broader sense of Arabic than I would have gotten any other way. And for people who aspire to get a career in the language learning industry, what uh, words of advice would you give them? Sorry, do you mean as a translator or what, what other language parts of the language learning industry? Well, as a translator, since that's your main experience, like if somebody wanted to get into translation, what would you recommend that they do? Because like, obviously your experience was, um, was a bit more random that you happened to find this company and happened to be just a proofreader, which evolved from there. But like, if you were starting over, if somebody else was starting over and they wanted to become a translator, what path would you suggest for them? Well, so the great thing about translation is that it's really about what you can do. It's not about your qualifications. You can, anyone who speaks two languages fluently can be a translator technically. And in my company, we're open to hiring people of all backgrounds. We found a lot of great translators who have no formal background in translation. They don't have a translation degree. They just learned a foreign language to fluency and they have a good sense of their native language. So I would say one thing that you really do have to have as a translator is a good feel for your native language. You have to have a good style in your native language and you have to be able to, let's say, perform a sort of ventriloquism when you translate, which means when you're translating different types of documents, you have to use the type of language in your native language that people would use who are a part of that field. So for example, if you're translating a news article, you have to use a journalistic style in your translation. If you're translating a legal document, you have to be able to fake speaking like a lawyer. Um, so one thing I would actually stress is really mastering your native language, which um, it just, it's a stumbling block. Like we've, some people do know both languages, but they can't produce uh, very good documents in their, in their native language. Um, what other advice can I give? Um, I mean, I think the, the other thing is, is language pairs as well matters a lot in the translation industry. I think if you really want to make it as a translator, especially without formal qualifications, it's easier in less common language pairs. I think if you are looking at like Spanish, English, French, English, uh, the market is very saturated. Uh, but I think, for example, Arabic, there's not a lot. If you're a native speaker of English and you speak Arabic fluently, there's really not a lot of competition in the translation market. Most of your competition are native Arabic speakers who are trying to translate into English. So, some are quite good, some not so good. But even still, as having a native feel in your language, you do have an advantage and you can produce higher quality translations than, than your competition. Absolutely agree with you there. I was a, a translator for several years myself. And even though I was dealing with the higher competition languages like French and Spanish, 
the fact that I was a native English speaker, and then on top of that, the fact that I had a specialization because I would only translate engineering documents. So most of what I translated were technical uh, manuals and such. And like you said, the competition tended to be other people who were natives of Spanish and French who may not quite know how a native English speaker would write them. So um, if you're a native English speaker, you give yourself a huge advantage in the translation industry. And uh, I definitely agree with that. So uh, I'm curious what your path looks like from here. Where do you see your career advancing and do you potentially want to learn new languages or travel some more? And um, like at the moment you're in Mexico. So like, do you see yourself staying there or where do you see the next few years going for you? Okay. Yeah. I think my problem has always been that I've had too many ambitions, especially with languages. And I think I have my sort of ideal pattern that I've developed from my previous experiences with French and Arabic, where I want to learn a foreign language. Then I want to go where they speak the language and live there and immerse myself and really master the language as you as you can only through immersion. So I have several languages lined up where I would like to do that kind of thing. Um, as I mentioned, I, I learned Persian, and obviously my dream is to one day live in Iran and really dive into Persian. But as an American, that is not really possible. So I've kind of had to put that dream on hold. Um, I think my Greek is currently at a level where I could go to Greece and dive into that. Um, so I, I might see myself living in Greece for a few months or, or a year or so. Um, Portuguese as well. I, I was in Brazil last year and I, I learned Portuguese and I, I would like to go back to Brazil. Uh, as I mentioned right now, I'm sort of working on German and Russian. Maybe I will go to those countries someday, but I'm, I'm interested in Russian more for Central Asia than for Russia itself. I'm, because of my background in the Islamic world, I'm kind of interested in Central Asia. So I would like to travel in Central Asia. Um, so, so many languages, so little time <laughs> is kind of my uh, dilemma. Final question then I have for you is something that I ask all podcast guests when they come on, because this is the Language Hacking Podcast. What do you understand as language hacking? And is uh, the concept of using language hacks something that you've embraced over the years? I mean, I would say language hacking is accelerating your language learning by finding the best, meth best method for you. Um, I think every language learner is different and I think everyone needs to sort of find their own approach. So this is something you refine over, over time, learning several languages. And I, in my experience, the more languages you learn, the easier it becomes to learn new ones and the faster you can learn them. So through your experience, you kind of find what your own language hacks are. Very well said. Okay, so we leave the interview there. Thank you very much for your time. I'll make sure people can find you with links in the show notes and uh, very much appreciate it. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. It's just been a pleasure. And until the next time, I wish everybody listening a very happy language learning. So at the end of these interviews, I do like to have a quick takeaway. And uh, there were several things. I did like uh, his expression, uh, sub arboribus, if I'm saying that correctly, uh, under the tree, 
which I think is a, a great concept that even in a Latin uh, language like Latin, where we expect it to be a mainly reading focused uh, kind of learning strategy, there are still moments where they try to get the groups to speak. So speaking is essential, even in a language like Latin. But I think my biggest takeaway was what he said about how he gets exposure to particular dialects. And that's through YouTubers. And like I told him my strategy when I was learning Egyptian Arabic, but I guess back then YouTube, I was a YouTuber myself, but it wasn't as um, expansive as it currently is. And especially other resources like TikTok and so on, that if you find people from that country, you can find the content that you can absorb in the language. And of course, go through it with a teacher record it or if it's a youtube video just press play and go through each sentence making sure you understand it and i think uh, local based youtubers can be amazing not just for arabic dialects i would give this advice for anyone learning any dialect if you're learning a specific spanish country dialect for instance maybe find youtubers and tiktokers from that country and go through their quickly spoken uh, videos with a teacher. And that may give you loads of an advantage over um, the kind of disparate amount of information you might get online otherwise related to the dialect. So um, yeah, that would be my big takeaway. And as always, I appreciate any support you guys send our way. Remember, we do have an active Patreon and you're very welcome to join. You'll get uh, some extra content on about half the episodes that we record we make sure we dive into a bunch of extra questions with the guests. And we also have uh, videos that I post about my travels and a bunch of other things. So definitely check out languagehacking.com slash Patreon. And that helps us keep this going to make sure we got plenty more fun interviews for you coming up in the future. And thank you very much for your support there. And until the next time, once again, I wish you guys a very happy language learning. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Language Hacking Podcast. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you found this episode valuable and want to help us out, please leave us a review at languagehacking.com forward slash review. The Language Hacking Podcast is presented by Benny Lewis, Shannon Kennedy, and Elizabeth Bruckner, and produced by Alice Semino, with special thanks to the Fluent in Three Months team. The theme music was written and performed by Shannon Kennedy. Find the show notes at languagehacking.com forward slash podcast. Thanks for listening and happy language learning.